Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Hannah Mazel. And I'm Ryan Ham. And Chris Youngblood is hanging out with his mother-in-law this weekend, so he can't be here. I'm actually also at my parents-in-law's in-house in Cincinnati, and I told them that I had to take a break to go do a work meeting downstairs, because <laughs> I didn't know how to tell them that this was actually my superhero podcast. I don't think they know about that one yet. I mean, it's, it's technically true. <laughs> it's a work meeting. I mean, it's yeah. like I feel like it's an investment. You never yeah. know when this thing could blow up and start paying the bills. Oh, sure. I always think that sound way more important to people like that. Maybe it is. I don't want to like, I don't want to diss this, this, this fine podcast we have going on here, but (laughs) (laughs) I'll just say that if there's anybody out there who thinks they're making a lot of money off of this, we're not. And if you're thinking they should be making a lot of money off of this, we agree. And you're welcome to help us brainstorm ways to, to make that into a reality. Um, Hannah, are you at, you're not at your in-laws, you're at your mom's house, right? Yeah, I'm at my mom and dad's place. I am uh, recording live from Boca Raton, Florida. Um, you sound so elderly. <laughs> well, we like to call it God's waiting room. Um, no, you don't. It's it's a beautiful place. It's like you know, 95 degrees. You know, 95 percent humidity. I have a just a glow to my face all the time. This is home, though. You know, born and raised. So. Feels kind of normal now that I've moved to Utah. I'm like, I feel like the like it's it's actually been a weird adjustment coming back here because Utah it's dry, it's desert, and like I'm actually feel slightly suffocated in Florida now. Do you feel so, like the heat is suffocating, like the or the humidity is suffocating? No, the, the humidity. It's hot in Utah. It's like in the hundreds yeah, sometimes. Really you know, it's but it's the humidity oh, anyway. I'm sorry to hear about that. Uh, I won't complain about weather. That's boring. So <laughs> yeah, we'll save this talk for our weather podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, you're it, it fits in the with the retirement community vibe that you're cultivating <laughs> today. <laughs> Um, Today, we are going to be talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, which we have all seen. Actually, we'll be giving you our breakdown of that and also a little bit of a recap of those characters and where they fit into the Marvel Universe. But before we do that, we're going to talk about a little bit of news. We're going to kick the news off with a piece of news that I feel like we've talked about at least five times. And I actually already kind of thought it was official. But now it is officially official that Joaquin Phoenix is going to be playing the Joker in a real life movie that is going to be coming out, going to be filming next year. And we're going to be seeing Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker, apparently concurrently with uh, Jared Leto, who is still going to be the Joker. They're going to have two different Hmm. Joker franchises going at the same time. And I guess I don't know. I don't know. I feel like this is still DC trying to figure out, like just throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. I really don't mind the idea of DC going a little bit smaller and doing more kind of lower budget one-off films like Logan that are not super connected to the rest of what they're doing. It can just be really interesting personal looks at a, at a single character. I just feel kind of jokered out and I'm not initially excited about nothing about nothing about seeing Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker really excites me. There's so many more characters out there and this will be the third Joker we've had in in less than 10 years. So I don't, what do you guys think? That's, that's my very grumpy take. No, I I feel like it would be surprising to me if like there were all these people out there super hungry for more Joker stories. Not that like it can't be fun. I mean, obviously like, you know, we're all fans of um, Batman, the animated series and, 
Um, you know, and I, I even enjoy some of the animated, um, you know, films that come out from DC. But in terms of making these huge feature films, it, it seems like an, you know, an odd use of resources yeah, for that's them. A good like point. they have, or like, and Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor. Yeah, my issue, I guess, isn't with Joaquin Phoenix. Um, I, I feel like he, I even kind of like the casting. I, I think that it could be an interesting. I think that in the right circumstances, he would be an interesting... I just don't really like the timing. I don't like the idea of Joaquin Phoenix. I don't like the idea of another Joker movie right now. I don't need another Joker movie in my life. It kind of seems like in a lot of ways, Heath Ledger's is still a little bit untouchable and it feels sort of recent. Jared Leto's felt recent and and that, that reboot didn't go well at all. It's also just the fact that DC has so many other characters and so many other, even villains or bad guys that they could explore in really interesting ways. And uh, I've know that some people are kind of upset because apparently this is going to be an origin story that'll dig into how the Joker became the Joker. I know for a lot of people, the mystery of the Joker is part part of the appeal. I don't really mind that. I could see an interesting. They could win me over on the idea of an origin movie. I just want to give the Joker a little bit of a break. Well, we, you know, we've seen like an amazing performance with, you know, Heath Ledger's mm-hmm. uh, Joker. We, you know, uh, Mark Hamill's uh, job of, you know, the voice acting was like, you know, yeah. just he's done a good job with that. Yeah. Like I can think of like several other, like, you know, superheroes, villains that they could be, you know, that could be exploring more um, spending those dollars on. If you could pick a, a DC villain to give a solo movie to, who would you go for? You know, off the top of my head, I think the one that would like do like not not just like I think that you can make a good story out of it, but it would just actually be successful be Deadshot. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think they have Will Smith, um, who's like, you know, really charismatic actor. I actually thought like he was the one redeeming quality from Suicide Squad. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I, I mean, I did not hate Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn in that. I just didn't like it's the mood. She couldn't do anything with the script she had. The material wasn't good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, the acting wasn't really the problem with most of the no. <laughs> Or at least it was so far down the list of problems that it's not worth bringing. Right. Up. Absolutely. But I feel like Deadshot could be like, a, you know, a really cool character too. And, and like you could do, you know, one of those standalone stories you were just mentioning with like, like, like they did with Wolverine. I think you could do that with Deadshot really easily without having to make this huge huge story, you know, and like including all these other characters in it. Um, I think, I think a lot of people might like it. And I think you could even do something like a hard R with that too. If they want to make it a little more adult. And since DC tends to go that way, seems like. They are supposedly or or apparently working on a sort of Harley Quinn focused movie called Birds of Prey, which would also have Poison Ivy, Catwoman and Barbara Gordon, Batgirl in it, which is another one that's like, well, fine, maybe. Um, that it, that interests me more than a Joker movie does, I suppose. Oh, sure. I don't know if that's a good enough, like, <laughs> like I don't know. We'll see. I like. Uh, there's just been nothing that has come out from DCU in terms of their, their movies that has just been like, oh, God, yes, I'm so excited about that. You're not excited about the Aquaman movie? I well, We talked about four. Like, I'm excited about it because of uh, James Wan. And I will see it because that, and like, I, I like to, you know, like, I don't want to have like all these hopes, you know, up, you know, up there for only to be disappointed, but I feel like I go in there with an open mind. I'm ready to go in with an open, I've always gone in with an open mind, but at some point as somebody who's like, who really loves this genre, they're losing me. And, uh, and I never, I never root for any of these to fail. Like I want them to succeed. If they're losing people like me, 
and you, then I can't imagine that the general public is super pumped about the rest of these. Yeah, no, I think there's people out there who just enjoy like an entertaining ride. And, and, and some of those movies totally fit into that category. So if that's what the DC universe wants to capitalize on, more power to them, but they're losing, I think in the process, they're losing the respect of the comic reading community. So, well, a movie that hasn't really lost our respect is the Spider-Man franchise, which came out of the gate really strong with homecoming we've got far from home we talked about last time how jake gyllenhaal is apparently going to be mysterio in this movie and now we find where this is just this is barely worth noting because we don't know anything about the character but from curb your enthusiasm and def jam uh jb smoot is going to be in far from home i saw some people on twitter thinking that he might be cast as J. Jonah Jameson, but I can't really tell if that was just wishful thinking, like fan casting, or if there's any actual substance to those rumors. Um, But I'm all on board with the idea of J.B. Smoove being in the Marvel Universe. That is literally the extent of that news item. We don't know anything else about it, but but I'm excited about it. I wanted to bring it up really briefly. Ryan, how you doing? So I thought I'd seen a rumor that he was going to maybe play a villain. That Um, J.B. Smoove was going to play a villain? Or maybe it's just because it was a lead. So I guess like I immediately jumped to maybe he's going to be one of the Sinister Six. That would, I mean, I'd be fine with that too. I just don't know which one. We don't know anything about it right now other than the the, the headline, which is all we've got. He'd be a good Jameson too. He would be a good Jameson. Somebody on our on our Twitter hit us up with the idea of uh, Terry Crews as J. Jonah Jameson. I'm not really sure that Daily Bugle is going to make an appearance in this one because apparently it's taking place overseas. And I've kind of got it in my head that the daily bugle of the Spider-Man homecoming universe is going to be more like a digital Buzzfeed, like fast paced. <laughs> I know I'm not any more interested in this idea than you guys are. I just, feel, is dead. <laughs> I, I, I feel in my heart, like instead of demanding pictures of Spider-Man, it's going to be somebody demanding like horizontal video landscape video of Spider-Man <laughs> for their Facebook page. Yeah. I mean, maybe, um, the other option, he could always be playing Miles Morales' dad. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. You think they're going to bring Miles in to this one at the same time? Let's just plant that seed now. We'll put it out in there into the universe? Well, I mean, I, I think it depends on how many, uh, like how how long Tom Holland's contract is. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. He'll, I feel like he's got to age out of that role pretty quickly, right? Or is he just going to be young forever? Young forever. <laughs> We're pulling for you, Tom Holland. Yeah, he, he's got a youthful glow about him. Um, <laughs> While we're on the topic of Spider-Man, we do want to take a brief moment here to uh, give a little RIP to uh, a a great in the industry who passed away. Steve Ditko was the co-creator of Spider-Man, also Doctor Strange uh, over at DC. He created Hawk and Dove. He was a a really he was a real odd guy, really interesting person, but a huge creative talent who, depending on the story you listen to, and there are there are a lot of stories about the creative of how who created spider-man and how but most of the most reliable stories do agree that ditko probably did the lion's share of the creation of spider-man um unfortunately never got the recognition for it that he deserved and uh kind of went off on some he got very into atlas shrugged and ayn rand and spent most of the later years of his life writing comic books about her and objectivism and that philosophy which is um you know there but for the grace of god go we all but the legacy that he left in pop culture and especially in superhero comics, you, you really can't throw a baseball in this country without hitting something that was influenced by him in some ways. 
and um and it was, it was sorry to see him go but he lived 90 he lived a long life and and he lived long enough to see his characters become immensely famous even if he didn't get a whole lot of money out of the deal Hannah, you found a lot of like you found like artwork about it everybody went crazy like the the like fan art community went all over it with this one and it was uh it was fun and really touching to see people's tributes going out to him yeah, it's amazing, like, all the things he influenced. I mean, Doctor Strange, um, but even, like, you know, more recently, Squirrel Girl and stuff. Like, he's been... Yeah, yeah, he created Squirrel Girl, too. And uh, and she just recently became, like, a big deal again, which is awesome that he got to see that happen, too. We wrote a little in memoriam to him, a little a little in memoriam Twitter thread is our only contribution to his legacy on, on the Cape Town Twitter thread, which you can go find if you like. Um, but RIP to Steve Ditko. RIP. RIP. Um, I did have one other piece of news oh, as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of uh, DC uh, announcements that are deeply confusing, um, a, like uh, Margot Robbie gave an interview this week and uh, talked about the Birds of Prey movie that apparently, allegedly, is coming out. Um, which, you know, much like the Joker, Harley Quinn is in like. I think roughly 20,000 movies in the next seven <laughs> She has the TV show coming out on DC thing or whatever. And this is the one we were talking about earlier with uh, that will maybe have Poison Ivy, Catwoman, and Barbara Gordon, maybe? I think so. But, like, I can't – I the thing I can't remember, though, is there's also a Gotham City Sirens movie that's supposed to be happening. Um, so I'm not sure if those are the same now or if they're different? This is going to be that instead of that one. I'm not sure anybody knows. I'm not sure Margot Robbie knows. <laughs> right, because there's also apparently a standalone Harley, Harley Quinn movie, uh, Harley Quinn and Joker movie with Jared Leto, I think. Um, or maybe Joaquin Phoenix, or maybe they'll like split the difference and get like Nicolas Cage. <laughs> to um, play Joker or Harley Quinn? Yeah, to play Joker. Um <laughs> And then, I mean, he's like roughly halfway between Joaquin Phoenix and Jared Leto, right? And then there's a then there's Suicide Squad too. So like, I think I think she's supposed to be in like four movies or something in the DC universe. Anyway, uh, so she said that this movie is definitely happening. They're going to start filming in January, and it's going to be an R-rated, small budget movie. Um, which, like, I mean, frankly, so sounds awful but uh i mean you know if they can do it cool Wait a that's minute. great an r-rated movie out of dc is the world ready for a dark yeah. gritty superhero movie exactly i'm curious about small budget though so does that mean like they're not going to just make it some kind of like cgi monstrosity i guess i mean like but the problem is is like yeah the dark and gritty part is like you know they've tried that before what i'm worried about is that they're going to go like full deadpool because the small budget suggests that um and then you know try to make it really funny um so you know if you're looking to be offended at the movie theater in the next four years i guess you we have a movie for you i'll get bring a hot take here small budget's actually one of the maybe the thing that would intrigue me about that is them trying to take it a little like smaller scale smaller stakes maybe make it a little more like we we're talking about making things a little more in the vein of Logan where you're focusing on, on characters. That would be my, I think the, this movie's best shot is to bring the budget down to something like a paltry 50 million <laughs> and, and see, see what happens then. I, yeah. I, I think there would be a possibility yeah. of success. Like if they can take their lunch money and find a good director and writer I can see what you mean by that. Yeah, like maybe take away like some of the things that distract you. Like Jared Leto. <laughs> yeah. 
Man, we are so not getting getting Jared Leto on this podcast for an interview at any time. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we're gonna get any like endorsement from Thirty Seconds to Mars for the next episode. Jared Leto, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, we will take that. We will take it all back. We will. Yeah, I will. Most of them will. <laughs> um, speaking of smaller scale movies, <laughs> um, <laughs> this uh, podcast is technically to talk about Ant Man and the Wasp, which we saw, which came out last weekend. Uh, had a successful opening weekend, uh, opened above people's expectations. With uh, I think it ended up make, making something like a hundred million. Uh, and wasn't supposed to crack 75. So that's got to be exciting. But I think people were probably hoping to get a few clues about what happened in Infinity War. Uh, Marvel's still riding high off of a lot of speculation. People looking for for some hints and teasers for the future, which Ant-Man and the Wasp did not deliver much on. Uh, we will be talking about the movie here for most of this. So if you haven't seen it, you may want to beware of spoilers um, fortunately with this movie, unlike a lot of recent Marvel movies, this isn't a spoilerific. There's not like a ton of, of major MCU universe shaping things. It, it is both literally and figuratively of much smaller movie. But, uh, if you don't want anything spoiled for you, then this would be a good time to turn off, go see the movie and come back and listen to it when you're done. So with that being said, Ant-Man and the Wasp, how do you guys feel? I liked it. It was it was nice, uh, which sounds like I'm damning it with fake praise. Uh, I'd say like it was a fun movie. It was nice. It was kind of nice to have a smaller stakes uh, Marvel movie. I thought it was really funny. I really loved that they gave a lot of the supporting characters a chance to shine. I thought the guy who played uh, Detective Wu, Scott Lang's probation officer, was like really good. Um, he was probably my favorite part of the movie. Um, and Michael Pena, of course, is like the greatest actor of his generation. And then I thought Bobby Bobby Cannavale, he didn't have very many appearances, but I laughed uproariously every time he was on screen. So yeah, I like I enjoyed it. It was like I said, it was nice to have smaller stakes. It was I thought it was they strayed from the Marvel formula in some interesting ways, I thought. Not having a villain, I thought was kind of a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was good. It, like, you know, it's not gonna it's not going to crack like my top five or even my top eight Marvel movies. Like, um, and I, I think I like the first one better still, but, um, yeah, overall I liked it. Yeah. Like off the bat, I'll just say I did like the first one better. Um, I thought it was a little, I thought the first one was a little, uh, funnier, but that being said, it might've been a little weird if they made it too funny right after infinity. War. Like I thought it was appropriately funny. Um, and that being said also, it's, it is like a nice, you know, respite from the intensity of Infinity War and honestly just the state of our world. So like if you have an opportunity to go see a funny movie, I think you should just go take it. So I, I, I truly enjoyed it. It was fun. It's it's got obviously like the good kind of like heist elements that we what we enjoyed from the first one. Um, I thought that Evangeline Lily did a great job. I enjoyed seeing how the relationship between her and her father progressed in this movie. I loved the quantum realm. I thought like visually it was super cool. Um, I almost wish they would have spent more time there and just like fully geeked out on that. I have high hopes for the quantum realm. I really hope they explore that more in future movies. Cause it's pretty cool. And based upon the, um, the ending credit scene, me thinks they will. So I'm hopeful for that. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. You know, like, the, like it, 
in terms of comedy, it's a great movie. I think, you know, we talked about that before with this movie where like, it's, it's hard to compare it to the, those higher stakes movies, the big team up movies that we, that, that come out, you know, like you can't really compare it to the captain America, like civil war and uh, some of the other ones. It's that very much apples and oranges with those. Movies. It's, it's different, but like, I, I kind of like that that Marvel is willing to just kind of bring something new with a different tone. And, and Paul Rudd does such a great job. And I will say too, like after reading more Ant-Man comics, like Paul Rudd does such a great job as Scott Lang. So I, I don't have anything negative to say about it. It's just, it's just different. So, you know, if, if, as long as you're not expecting like the same high stakes, like, you know, it's not, it's not like the total thrill ride that some of the other movies are, but I had fun with it. I'm going to agree with the general the general consensus here. I kind of like when these movies go a little smaller stakes. You can only hear, if we don't do blank, then the whole world's going to be destroyed or millions of people will die so many times before it just sort of loses all meaning. Um, but this movie was really just focused the entire time on saving Janet, saving Michelle Pfeiffer. And that kept the stakes very believable. It kept it very tangible. And in some ways, that feels a little more powerful now just because there's uh, one life being on the line instead of millions and millions, or in the case of Infinity War, trillions of lives gives it something that you can wrap your head around a little more. And it feels, it feels a little more meaningful when you actually do see that succeed. And I was surprised by how moved I was at their reunion, despite the fact that they hadn't really been on screen or we hadn't given a whole lot of reason to really care about the hurt about, uh, their relationship because it was it was very touching to see them actually get back together. Like you, Ryan, I think the supporting cast had a lot of opportunity to shine here. Um, I lo- really love Randall Park's character. I thought he was super funny and stole a lot of scenes. I thought Evangeline and Lily ran away with the show and was a great new character, a great addition. It made me wish that she had been in the first Ant-Man more because she was so good in this one. It felt a little bit weightless, but it was it's hard to imagine what anybody would not like about it. There's just not a whole lot there to disagree with. The villain, such as it was, the ghost character, was sympathetic in really interesting ways and was believably had a believable, really tangible motivation. A lot of times these Marvel movies struggle with a villain who wants you can't even figure out what he or she really wants. And in this case, what she wanted was really easy to understand. And I appreciate that and wish more villains would take cues from that direction and i was the one i would say twist that you could maybe say was an actual twist in here was that bill foster lawrence fishburne's character had a heel turn which i didn't see coming they played me so marvel got me again another great (laughs) another red herring i really liked um i did really like too that like the true villain was uh walter goggins yeah um, that's true because he should be a villain in everything he's great i just i love walter goggins and i like bobby Cannavale. i'm with you bobby Cannavale. i wish he had a bigger role in the marvel universe because he's so yeah he's such a great great actor and such a good character yeah uh did a great job as as the like (laughs) as like a weirdly into his wife's like ex-husband <laughs> character yeah i mean but how can you not love paul rudd america loves paul rudd. america does love paul rudd and i really liked i thought uh, they they really banked on the success of uh scott's daughter cassie because she had some difficult material and child actors can really ruin a movie sometimes but i liked her quite a bit i thought she did a good job yeah they have a great chemistry uh, together. Yeah, she did a great yeah, job. And uh, they kind of hinted, I don't know if they'll do it, but in the comics, Cassie does become a superhero in her own right in a few years. 
I don't know if that's the direction that Marvel's going, but if they do decide to do that, then they've definitely set her up for a lot of success in that. Let's talk about, because I know we've all been reading, uh, the, the three of us have been reading a lot of Ant-Man and the Wasp comics this week. Um, what, let's talk about a little bit about the differences between the movie and the and the series themselves. The tone in the comics has really jumped all over the place, and we'll get into that in the pre-recorded bit. But Hannah, something that you brought up before we started recording was that some Ant-Man comics get extremely dark um, and and gritty in some very, uh, I would say, disturbing ways in the comics, especially regarding the the marriage between Ant-Man and the Wasp, who in the comics in this case is Hank Pym and his wife Janet, uh, who have a a very uh, uh, an abusive relationship, which is obviously is not something that's really touched on in these movies. Did you guys read any of those stories where they delve into that? Yeah, I was super surprised by that. I just came across that and, you know, some research. And because uh, I was reading um, Nick Spencer's run. And then I went back and I did just like the quick origins kind of review. And I didn't go back and read issue for issue, the earlier stuff with him with Hank Pym as, as Ant-Man. And I don't know, if, like, if you can fully excuse it. Like, he's kind of a dick. Hank Pym is kind of a dick. And so I, I think it was wise to not go there in the movies like i don't think it would have served much of a purpose to do that like to make him like a true villain i think that you know in this movie you saw flaws of of hank's character in in the first one a little bit um you know obviously like mistakes he'd made and i think then they went there also with the second one but they didn't truly make him a villain just a man with with an ego who's made some mistakes you know like like the character of the ghost is actually kind of like a ghost of his past, if you will, you know, um, just things that like you, you could look back now, you know, in the present and say like, Oh, like he could have handled that differently. Um, but in the comics, it's like, Oh dude, you're like, he's verbally abusive. And I think even in some, uh, he's actually like, like he think he like slaps Janet Van Dyne. I'm not sure totally where that is. I didn't read that one. But I was surprised to read that. It's like, is it just because like it was a 1960s or like, were they truly making him a villain? Um, so what do you guys think about that? Like, it's really tough because it's one of those where I think when it happens, I, and I can't remember if it was the 60s or the 70s, like when it happened, you could tell it was sort of the comic book writers trying to tell this like very dramatic story. And like not landing the sensitivity required to tell that kind of narrative. Cause you know, I, I think like you can effectively tell those kinds of stories well, but like you have to be so careful and so um, intentional about what you're saying and how you're saying it. Like, I, I'm glad that there's more attention paid to that kind of narrative now and that people would get a lot of pushback now that they probably wouldn't have gotten um, in decades past. It is hard because it felt like they wrote themselves into a narrative corner. Um, I do think they've treated it more um, holistically in like recent years where it has kind of played into Hank Pym being just sort of like a giant jerk. And it's pretty clear that his treatment of Janet has had like lasting repercussions, including his physical abuse to the point where like, I like I think he like he was kicked out of the Avengers for it and um you know and there's still been like some trust issues and characters now will bring it up occasionally and it's always kind of this stain on his heroism or you know ability to be good or bad 
so you know, I, I like I think that's like that's interesting, but it's still one of those like really really puzzling relics of the past. Um, sort of along the lines of like you know we've talked about like Barbara Gordon's treatment and the Killing Joke a lot. You know, it's kind of on the, in my mind, it's kind of the same lines of that where it was a writer trying to do something dramatic and kind of playing into these really damaging tropes that thankfully people seem to be a little bit more aware of now than maybe they used to be. Um, But at the same time, it puts this black mark on the character that um, doesn't just go away. And I want to be careful here. We are talking, uh, this is a a content warning because I do want to be cautious in in our own discussions about spousal abuse and relationships, uh, emotional and verbal and physical, which the comics have all dealt with in the case of of the relationship there. And it does seem like this came from a time where people wanted, the writers in most of these cases, they wanted to tell a story that, that was meaningful and dealt with real issues that people are dealing with that their readers are dealing with and maybe not understanding the severity or complexity of these issues i I would say in in most cases severity because this is not the the idea of having uh, an abusive superhero this isn't something you can just resolve in a single issue of a comic book this is it's not something that he just apologizes for and you can go back to your old heroic ways that's obviously an extremely serious it's an evil thing to do and and you can't that's not a flawed hero who who hits people then then at that point you cross the line into something much more serious and in need of a much more serious uh redemption so that that's why i think that that sometimes especially in an industry as dominated by men as comic as superhero comics is delving into those issues is often not treated with the sort of severity and gravity that that it takes. And I do think that in more recent years, there are comics out there, there are graphic novels that have dealt with these issues in very sensitive ways that have understood it. I don't think it's accidental that most of those stories have been handled by women who probably have, uh, in many cases, have been the ones who have felt the effects of those uh, more often than than men do. So I, I think it's, I think Ken is exactly right that that's not an issue that these movies, especially with the tone they're going for, needed to delve into at all. And I'm glad they decided to not try to tip their cap to it however lightly, because you can't just make a movie about that and have that be sort of a, a dark side plot. It's, it's too serious for that. But also, I mean, I do think that the comics are more willing to, and I mean, I think this continued is uh, more modern comics have wrestled with some of the truly awful things that Hank has done in the past. But I also think there's more room for that in the comics because, like, in the comics, Hank Pym is also the one who creates Ultron. So it's not like he's this, like, beacon of uh, purity anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, I, like, I, I think he's given – he's much more – at least in my reading, he's much more of an anti-hero in the comics that tends to be, you know, maybe someone they turn to whenever they need some shrinking stuff than a hero. And, and I mean, I, I do think that – the difficulty of how like how on earth you could possibly make people care about this guy. Um, I think that's been a real struggle, which is why there've been like roughly, you know, 1 million Ant-Men in the past 30 years, Um, which even like, which in the Nick Spencer run, like Scott Lang jokes about all the time that, you know, he's like people keep, keep coming after him for, uh, you know, putting them away in jail and he keeps insisting that it wasn't him because it was some other person who had the costume at that point. 
but I, I mean, I do think that, you know, in trying to bite off a little more than they were capable of uh, chewing, that they really did damage to the character of Ant-Man. So, like, I mean, to me, it makes total sense that they're trying, like, trying to move away from that in the movies. It also makes sense that they're focusing on Scott Lang rather than Hank Pym. And Hank can just be sort of this gruff Michael Douglas character who looks super creepy when he's 20 years younger. <laughs> they kept him in the shadows for most of it, probably really wisely. This is uh, uh, completely unrelated, but there's probably never in all cinematic history been a de-aging process as unnecessary as Michelle Pfeiffer's in this movie because she hasn't aged a day since she was 35 years old. And they, I don't know what they did to her in those flashback scenes, but she looked the exact same in them as she did in the modern scenes. Well, I would say that she probably has aged. She just has an exceptionally talented esthetician and plastic surgeon. (laughs) Is esthetician the word for it? Well, yeah, the person who, you know, like facials and Botox and whatnot. So yeah, she probably has. I just, I know in the spirit of, you know, let's be let's be real here. Like she has age. She's not superhuman, like in real life. So, <laughs> but she's right. aged gracefully and elegantly. She does so with taste, but you're right. I actually, I was totally impressed by whatever kind of technology they use with Michael Douglas, both and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in that opening scene, because it, it's come a long way. I feel like. Yeah, it has. And it's it's very technologically impressive. But then, like, at one point, I was very distracted by his mouth because I don't know if you've ever seen, like, those clips on. I can't remember if it's Conan or Jimmy Fallon that does it, where they have the, like, uh, CGI where, it, like, move, like, the mouth moves in time with someone else speaking. Um, but, like, their upper lip is always kind of static. That's what it reminded me of, because at one point, his upper lip got, like, very stiff. And then he kept talking, and it was a little weird. I do think that this movie did a, uh, and Hannah, you referenced this, and I think it's totally true, did a good job of showcasing some of the ways in which Hank was uh, maybe not a perfect person in some of the ways that he's hurt people and the ways that his hubris has gotten in the way of friendships and relationships and the the negative repercussions that that has had on his current relationships, which is a much more manageable sort of dark character trait to handle in a movie like this because it's uh it's much less severe but still very relatable and and still an important one to grapple with and i appreciated that they uh didn't brush that off or excuse it but showed that people had been hurt by the chances that he'd taken in the ways that he had sometimes refused to take responsibility for his actions or refused to listen to other people um that was a good moment of depth from a movie that that needed some depth no, I think like one thing I, I really liked about the movie as well as the comics is the struggles of the characters. Like they're very relatable. Like they're more like, you know, like a normal, a normal Joe's struggles in life. Whereas like, like a lot of other characters we see, you know, they're human, they're flawed, but it's like, you know, like T'Challa, the Black Panther is like, how do I become, how am I like a leader of a country? But like also, you know, like... <laughs> And Avenger, like, that's awesome. I have no idea what that's like in real, you know. And, you know, even like Steve Rogers is he's like an exceptional human. You know, he takes the high road like every time. And I don't know that many people who can relate to that, you know, kind of character and sense of morality. In the comics, I just I always liked how like Scott Lang in particular, he's he's super self-deprecating, like he is in the movies, but he's just like I feel like he kind of feels like a fraud a lot of the time, which I think is something like so many people can relate to and 
different ways, you know? But I, I just thought that was a, a really cool trait to see him, not only as like him being Ant-Man, um, but as a father and like as an ex-husband and like all, like how he just kind of feels like he lets people down all the time, but not because, you know, he's like, you know, I, I think of like a character like Daredevil, who's like, oh, like I'm an asshole, but because like I was up all night fighting ninjas and I got to keep my identity from my best friend. And like, he's, he's just mean. I don't know. He, like he kind of angers me. Like Scott Lang is like this great character where he's just like, you could just see like the internal struggle. Like I mean, well, but like, I just always want to find the easy way out of everything. <laughs> like, and um, his flaws aren't like cool flaws. They're very like normal, like just sort of like doofus dude, bro flaws that we all struggle with sometimes of just like being, like not quite the person that you wish you were. Yeah, and super self-aware of that also in the process, which I which I like actually really appreciated. You guys both uh, dug into Nick Spencer's uh, Ant-Man series this week a little bit. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. What'd you think of it? Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, most of my, I'll admit, most of my Nick Spencer uh, experience had been uh, the Captain America stuff where Captain America became a Nazi. So I was not necessarily like, team nick spencer before i began the ant-man series he's very funny yeah he's super funny it was really good like i thought kind of the self-deprecating like hannah said like kind of the self-deprecation and the light touch that scott lang uses toward the ant-man legacy um really made it like really made it work really well i think sometimes uh superhero movies and comics can get kind of you know obsessed with their own importance and um, you know, like, what does this mean? How are we icons? Which, like, I think even Nick Spencer did with the Captain America stuff. But you know, having having a superhero sort of make fun of his own his own history and the history of all the people that had had the costume before him was really good. But I also thought like he did a really good job of um, something that the movie I think does pretty well. But I like I would love to see more of is just like having his relationship with Cassie be so central to it because um, I think giving like giving a superhero character kids, I think is such a, uh, such a grounding thing. And so many superheroes like maybe have significant others or like, you know, you think about like Bruce Wayne or Superman or um, a lot of the other characters you talked about, um, like T'Challa, like, you know, none of them have kids. Like maybe they have a person that they really care about, but a lot of times there's not this, there's not this deep sense of connection to, know a child that they are a parent of and I like I get that that's a hard thing to write and you never want to make light of that and it's probably not like a fun thing to have to grapple with because you can't just like you know send your character to Europe for two weeks because they're gonna miss a kid's school thing but I think having him be like that character that's sort of the grappling with like how do I be a good dad like is it being a better dad to stay away from my kid and keep them out of danger like, I, th- I think those are really interesting issues that um, I wish more comics would delve into. And um, we'll get into a little bit of what we're talking about when we talk about all these different Ant-Men and the wa- and different Wasps, honestly, too, and how to grapple with those legacies in our script. Here next. Hey, quick note, uh, in this script, we will be talking a little bit about domestic abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse that takes place in some of these comics. Uh, just wanted to give a content warning for anybody out there listening. It started with The Man in the Ant Hill, a short 1962 story about a scientist named Hank Pym who gets shrunk down to the size of a bug by 
how else, a science experiment gone awry. The story was written by Marvel's famed rock star duo Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, but reading it today, it ranks among the less inspired stories of their glory days. It's basically about a bug-sized scientist who spends the day running away from hungry insects until he manages to reverse the process and live happily ever after. He wasn't a superhero yet, so happily ever after seemed like it may have been in the cards. But success will change a man, and despite its underwhelming amount of imagination, the story sold well. This was in the early days of Marvel's superhero boom. Characters like the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man were selling well, and the company was hungry for more super titles. The man in the anthill had sold well, and shrinking is technically a power, so why not put the guy in a costume? Hank Pym re-entered the scene in an issue of Tales to Astonish, this time with a snazzy red suit and an army of ants at his command. A few issues later, he was given a girlfriend, a flighty socialite and lab assistant by the name of Janet, who would become his sidekick, the Wasp. Ant-Man and the Wasp never achieved the same level of notoriety as their peers, like Iron Man and Thor. Even when they became the founding members of the comic book Avengers, their popularity failed to take off, and they left the team shortly after it formed, replaced by the much more Avenger-like Captain America. In later years, Stan Lee would blame the artists for failing to depict Hank and Janet's powers creatively enough. I would say, draw a matchbook cover next to him so we could see the difference in size, he would say, but they kept forgetting. There are other plausible explanations. For one, ant powers just aren't all that interesting. For another, Janet was subject to all the worst possible tropes of women in superhero comics, with some dialogue that was cringeworthy even by the standards of the early 60s, forever pining after Ant-Man, fussing about clothes and crying to be rescued. Sensing that perhaps shrinking abilities weren't capturing readers' imaginations, and aware that the Wasp was lagging far behind the now full-blown feminist movement in America, ensuing writers tried to find ways to make the duo more interesting. They gave Ant-Man the ability to grow taller, calling him Giant-Man or Goliath. They subjected him to chemicals that made him less of a two-dimensional do-gooder and more of a carefree, temperamental rascal who went by Yellow Jacket. These characters clicked in varying degrees, but Hank and Janet changed so much that it was difficult to ever really get a bead on them. That changed in the 80s, when hotshot Marvel editor Jim Shooter had Hank strike Janet in a fit of rage. The character had been growing more mentally and emotionally unstable for a number of years, Shooter would later claim he'd told the artist to depict Pym accidentally striking Janet and said the artist misunderstood him. But readers and even creators agreed that a line had been crossed. Captain America court-martials Hank, who eventually winds up in jail. In general, both Marvel Comics and fans tend to pretend that this whole story had never really happened. Flawed heroes are one thing, but superhero comics have limitations on the subject matter available to them especially when it seems like writers and artists hadn't properly considered the weight of their content. Since then, the Ant-Man mantle has been passed around, ultimately ending up with a self-deprecating small-time thief with the heart of gold named Scott Lang, the one Paul Rudd plays in the movies. And the Wasp is currently Nadia Van Dyne, Hank's daughter, who was raised in the same school for assassins that trained the Black Widow. The tone of the current comics tends towards a hopeful, goofy sci-fi bent, more in keeping with the goofy sci-fi powers. They're much better, and they stand as a tribute to what can happen when you refuse to give up on the seed of a good idea. 
It took about 50 years, but Ant-Man and the Wasp finally have a film franchise, a successful line of comics, and even some name recognition. Not bad for such little guys. One thing that we were talking about earlier, and Ryan and Hannah, you both mentioned this, that sort of sets Ant-Man uh, and the Wasp both apart a little bit is that they are parents and they they take their parental roles are, are handled very seriously in these comics. I, I had kind of mentioned in a in ahead of time that we want to talk a little bit about romances in these superhero comics, but I am curious to ask how you guys feel about other characters, um, just the way that that these both the comics and the movies have dealt with the idea of family or haven't dealt with the idea of family. Um, most superheroes that we talk about, most superheroes in general are depicted as these brooding loners who uh, can't keep a straight relationship because of the masks that they wear, they destroy their relationships or they're just too psychologically damaged to carry on a healthy to have any sort of healthy relationships in their life. But there are some characters, and I think Ant-Man and the Wasp are one of them, who even right there in the name, they're necessarily, uh, they have to get along and they're a part of each other's lives. And that includes children and that includes parents. And that's a really interesting thing to see in the superhero format. Are there other movies that you feel like have dealt with the idea of family really well? Man, I can't think of like huge storylines that pop out from MCU movies. Like obviously, like I think there's like some father son relationships. Like you look at um, Tony Stark and his father, you know, but it's less about like being a parent, you know, because Tony's dad isn't like a huge character in terms of like him being a superhero. He's like, you know, a collaborator. He's like a huge figure, but it's less about like he's kind of just like an often absent dad. But that's like the first thing I thought of just because that's something that they talk about a lot in the movies as well. Um, and that Tony kind of is reconciling with throughout all the movies really that he's a part of. Yeah. And I think that's the idea of like an absent father is a big one. And a lot of these or a lot of them are orphans or have a serious father issue. Yeah. I'd say like, honestly, the thing that jumps out to me is the, like the relationship between Tony and Peter Parker um, which isn't technically father son, but both are kind of missing that relationship in their lives. And I thought like that was actually the most effective part of Infinity War um, in terms of like the smaller moments was just that connection that they had uh-huh. and how clear it was that Tony really viewed Peter as, you know, basically a son that Peter really viewed Tony as, you know, a father figure and not in like a cheesy way, but um, I thought in a really effective way. Yeah, of course. Dabbing his eyes right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, other than that, I mean, I don't. I'm trying to think of any other MCU characters who have kids. Uh, like, I think there were some interesting uh, Tony Stark stuff in in Iron Man three. Hawkeye. Oh yeah, Hawkeye and then there is Hawkeye. Thing. So, I, which I actually kind of like. I, yeah, I don't hate it. <laughs> this is a total aside, but I do wish. Like, I was hoping Hawkeye would be in the Ant Man movie. Um, because we still don't know where he was at. Man, so. He better he better have a huge moment when he comes back. <laughs> but I, I hope the for the opening of Avengers Four is just him collapsing into ash. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there were some rumors early on before Ant Man and the Lost came out that this was going to be Marvel's first true romantic comedy. I don't think this really delivered on that rumor, which is fine. I just wouldn't say it was a romantic comedy. Uh, I think that these movies have struggled with romance, which is weird because they came out of the gates really strong. I do think that first Iron Man movie 
with Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert Downey Jr.'s characters had a lot of really good romantic tension to it. I thought their their chemistry was great, but I don't think any of these movies have really matched that since then. Although I know that a lot of people disagree with me and they they think that Steve and Peggy in the first Captain America movie have a a really strong relationship. Yeah. Like it's sweet, right? Yeah, it would it, it like makes for a good story, <laughs> but I'm not sure like they had enough screen time together to really to really solidify that. And um and then if we were to talk about Steve and Sharon. See, I was all into that. Oh, you were into it? Oh yeah. Oh, totally. I, I was not. But I mean it's because I've read the comics. So I'm just like, if he doesn't kiss her right now, I'm gonna be furious. Sure. In the comics it makes sense though. Like they have they they have a good relationship in the comics. Like reflect like they talk very honestly with one another and like a lot of I don't know. In the movie though, it just kind of feels a little it feels forced. They had that very cute moment about laundry. <laughs> So I don't know what everyone's <laughs> complaining about. I thought, well, that's an easy sell, isn't he? I, just didn't <laughs> I, I, I know that like Chris and I, sorry, Tyler. I know Chris and I have talked about us being like really pro um, Steve and Natasha and who's the black widow. And I'm waving my flag for that. And I just, I feel like they have the, they have the greatest chemistry. They really do. Oh, I, don't see it. I mean, I'd be okay with that. I do not ship it whatsoever. See, I'd be okay with it. Like what happens is he needs to, this is very dorky, but like he needs to date agent 43 for a movie, like then needs to really wrestle with it. And then like have his heart broken. And then like Natasha is there and he realizes it's been her all along. So basically I just want like a Captain America rom-com is what I'm suggesting. This isn't all going to happen before he dies in Avengers four. That's a good point. We're out of time. That's not, there's no time. <laughs> I think that if anything, I feel like Natasha and Bucky are there's, I think there's going to be a romance in the wings there, which I know I feel like I'm the only like real stand for Bucky on this podcast, but I stand by it. I, I'm a big fan of his. And I think that he's probably I, I like Bucky. I feel like all like the last like 45 seconds, I just really started thinking about how I should probably write some kind of like Stephen Natasha fan fiction. <laughs> yes, please get into Slashback. Get your Tumblr. Yeah. I'll, yeah, if anyone's interested, I'll I'll pass it along once I get started. But I feel like that's just my only way to get full closure on this because I just don't see it happening. <laughs> like, really, it's not going to happen. Yeah, but you can get your own Statasha fandom going on Twitter, and you'll be fine. Yeah. They'll live forever and happily ever after in our hearts. I appreciate your support which is where this podcast is going to go to. With that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks for listening to this podcast, guy. If you like what you heard, then please head over to our Apple Podcast page. Make sure you give us a positive review. Tell us how much you liked it. Subscribe as well. And hey, tell your friends about it while you're at us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Cape Town Pod, at, on Facebook at Cape Town Pod. Um, we're over there uh, fielding questions and we pass along a lot of news that we discussed uh, more in depth here. But if you want to get the breaking news and you can find out about it on our social media channels, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Hannah Mazel. I'm Ryan Ham. And hang on. Oh, what? I have a message from Chris Youngblood. That <laughs> oh, that's right. To read. Yeah, share, the, share the message. Uh, yeah, he said, Dear Capers, which apparently is our listener. I like it. I apologize. And we had no discussion about this. So if you don't want to be a caper, please tweet at us. Chris says, I'm sorry the only reason you subscribe isn't here this week for my sizzling takes on your favorite masked vigilantes. But fear not, good citizen. I'll be back next week to bring you peace and calm once again. Love to all my N9s out there. Ya boy, Chris. I read it as written. It's bad, but that's Chris. 
Uh, and for Chris Youngblood and with thanks to CMS Studios for producing this we will see you guys next time no need for thanks citizens bye